Well, let me invite you uh, this morning to turn in your Bibles to John uh, chapter 4. John uh, 4, for our time of study in God's Word, uh, this morning we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John, and as we continue in our study of this Gospel, we come uh, this morning uh, once again to verse 10, and my goal today is to cover verses 10 through uh, 19. And the title of the message this morning, as you will have uh, seen on your uh, sermon notes, is A Woman Obeys Her Thirst. A Woman Obeys Her Thirst. You know, if there's uh, one thing notable about our culture uh, today, it's that we care a lot about what we drink, right? Uh, Americans spend almost half a trillion dollars a year on drinks that they consume. I went into a BevMo store near our house for the first time uh, a few months ago and was blown away to find a store almost completely given over to selling things that people drink We have all kinds of drinks for every variety of taste and preference, and things are only getting more complicated. If you want sugar or sugar-free, diet caffeinated or caffeine-free, or if you want super caffeinated uh, energy drinks, there are drinks to suit your taste. I remember a day when I was a kid when there was a thing called Gatorade, and it was yellow. And it was as simple as that. Now there are 31 flavors of Gatorade, including lime cucumber. Who thought of that? And why is that still selling in stores? (laughs) There are smoothies and uh, milkshakes of every variety. There is tap water, mineral water, sparkling water smart water. And a few years ago, someone introduced me to alkaline water, and they told me that once you drink alkaline water, you won't ever go back to drinking normal water again. Nowadays, there's vitamin water and all sorts of carbonated water like LaCroix, which my kids loved in a way that I never understood Nowadays, there's carbonated water with no taste. It's just water with carbonation. We have people on our staff who drink stuff like that every day, and I have tried to understand it, but I don't understand the appeal. Uh, And then there are coffees and espressos and frappuccinos and cappuccinos. Gone are the days when you walk into a coffee shop and say, with this being a coffee shop and all, I'd like to order a coffee. (laughs) Uh, Things are more complicated now. In fact, back in 2008, the CEO of Starbucks was speaking to 6,000 shareholders and presenting their five-point plan for serving their customers. And one of the points of that plan was as follows. Quote, Starbucks will not charge for syrups, milk, alternatives, and other extras added to drinks, no matter how numerous or complex, unquote. And people have taken them up on their promise. 
meaning that if someone wants to order, and I'll try to get this right, a venti, half skinny, half 1%, extra hot split quad shot latte with whip, they can do that and get exactly what they ordered. Sprite uh, once had an advertising campaign slogan that said, obey your thirst. And everyone seems to be doing that nowadays. We become very introspective in asking the question, what am I thirsty for precisely? And we have people who make their living catering to our whims and giving us precisely what it is that we want. And I'm not knocking any of this. I think it's great. By all means, have at it. I certainly do. But it is ironic that we give so much detailed attention to obeying our physical thirst while at the same time giving so little attention to obeying our soul's thirst. And yet there is no more important issue in your life than how you satisfy the thirst of your soul. Before we get into the passage for today where we're going to address this issue, I want to give you two quick facts regarding this matter of quenching the thirst of your soul. Fact number one is that your thirst quenching, your soul thirst quenching choices are a very big deal that grab the attention of heaven. Heaven is your audience. You and I are on stage, and the Bible teaches us that heaven is riveted by the choices that you and I make regarding how we satisfy the thirst of our souls. How do I know this? In Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, God is speaking about what he sees people doing to satisfy their thirst. And he says in Jeremiah 2, 12 and 13, be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder. Be very desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. A passage like this teaches you that how you choose to quench your soul's thirst makes for gripping theater in heaven. And probably nothing says more about you than the choices you make in quenching your soul's thirst. If you want to know what kind of person you really are, ask yourself how you satisfy the thirst of your soul. The true measure of a person is found in what he drinks. A second quick fact is this about this matter of quenching your soul's thirst is that Jesus cares very much. Jesus cares very much about your soul's thirst and he claims that he can satisfy it. This is very clear from the gospel of John. In John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus says, He who believes in me shall never thirst. In John chapter 
7, verses 37 and 38, Jesus says, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. No one in history makes the promises that Jesus makes about solving your thirst problem when it comes to the thirst of your soul. And in our passage today, we're going to see Jesus taking a very personal interest in satisfying the soul of a Samaritan woman, satisfying the thirst of the soul of a Samaritan woman whom we met last Sunday. Last week, we looked at John 4 from the perspective of what Jesus does to bring this woman to a place where she is asking him for the living water that only he gives. And today, we're going to look at this text from the vantage point of what this woman does in order to move toward finally getting her soul's thirst truly quenched by Jesus. You'll remember just a really, really quick review that Jesus is traveling north from Judea to Galilee. He ends up going through the region of Samaria. Wearied from his journey, he sits by a well while his disciples go into town to buy food. And while Jesus sits there, a woman approaches the well to draw water. Jesus speaks to her and he asks her to give him a drink. She expresses surprise that Jesus, being a Jew, would speak to her, a Samaritan woman. And this is where we'll pick up in the narrative this morning. And we'll observe seven steps, seven steps that the Samaritan woman takes toward getting her soul's thirst quenched by Jesus. And as I promised last week, we're going to be sweeping back through some verses that we covered last Sunday. And then we'll pick up in the text, probably on our fourth or fifth point, um, and begin covering new ground. But seven steps that this Samaritan woman takes toward getting her soul's thirst quenched by Jesus. Number one, and this is by way of review, she learns about the gift of God and the identity and eagerness of Jesus. She learns about the gift of God and... She begins to learn something about the identity and the eagerness of Jesus. Listen to what Jesus says to her in verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Essentially, Jesus is saying, Ma'am, if you only knew the gift of God which will satisfy your thirst. You have a thirst and God has a gift for you. And it just so happens that there is a perfect match between your thirst and the gift that God has for you. Keep in mind that when Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, he's not talking about two different things, but one. What is the gift of God? It's Jesus. He is the one that God gives to satisfy the thirst of our soul. 
Jesus himself is the living water. And Jesus is essentially saying to this woman, if you knew these things, you would have asked me already, and I would have already given you living water. Jesus here is so eager to satisfy the thirst of this woman's soul, just as he is yours and mine. And if you call out to him, you're going to find Jesus' response to be immediate. If you cry out to him for this living water, and you'll find the living water that he gives available in abundant supply. And you'll see that there are no supply chain issues when it comes to this living water from Jesus. No shortages of living water from Jesus to worry about. You'll find that there's no period of time needed for Jesus to process your request and think about whether or not he even wants to give you this living water that you are asking him for. Just come to Jesus and ask him for the living water that only he gives, and he will have it for you in abundant supply, and he will give it to you instantly, just like this Samaritan woman is about to find out. There's a second step this Samaritan woman takes toward quenching her soul's thirst by Jesus. Number two, she listens to Jesus' promises of eternal thirst-quenching satisfaction. She listens to Jesus' promises of eternal thirst-quenching satisfaction, and we need to listen too. Admittedly, this woman is at this point unimpressed with what Jesus has thus far said. In verses 11 and 12, she says to Jesus, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? These are her questions, and to her credit, she asks these questions and and then allows Jesus to speak, and she listens to his answer, and you and I should listen to his answer also. Observe what this woman hears Jesus say in verse 13. Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, pointing to the well, shall thirst again. Before Jesus tells this woman about the water that he gives, he first tells her about the insufficiency of the water that she has been drinking from this well and its inability to satisfy her thirst And Jesus speaks to all of us in the same way. In order to address the thirst of our souls, Jesus does not merely point to himself and tell us to drink from him. He first points to everything else that we might look to to be the thirst quencher of our souls. And he says these things are not going to satisfy your thirst. If you drink these things, you are going to thirst again, be it a relationship, money, popularity, physical fitness, skinniness, buffness, 
beauty, career, advancement, sex, marriage, pornography, a new house, a new car, a different spouse, a transformed spouse, the list can go on. Be those things good or bad if you depend on any of such things or people to quench your soul's thirst, those things will fail you and leave you empty. So don't put pressure on these things and people to satisfy the thirst of your soul. If you do, you might as well be drinking salt water that will not only not satisfy your thirst, but leave you even more thirsty than you were before. As for the water Jesus offers, in verse 14, Jesus says, But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. And what this means is shall never go thirsty. But the water that I give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. What a great promise this is. If I were to ask you this morning, what would it take to make you satisfied? What would your answer be? When our oldest daughter was around eight years old, I asked her what it would take to make her truly satisfied. And she gave me an honest answer. She said, Dad, if I had every beanie baby in the world, I would be satisfied and happy. I remind her of that from time to time, and she shakes her head at that now. Your answer may not be Beanie Babies, but what is your answer? What external thing are you looking to to satisfy the thirst of your soul? Here in verse 14, Jesus promises that he can give you living water that will come into you and take residence within you and then spring forth from within you and give you a satisfaction that literally comes from the inside out. And evidently, it can satisfy you regardless of whatever your external circumstances may be. And at the end of the day, isn't that what we most want? A satisfaction that is not dependent on our external circumstances? Speaking on this very point, Timothy Keller says the following, Jesus says here, there's nothing outside of you that can truly satisfy the thirst that is deep down inside of you. To continue the metaphor a bit further, you don't need water splashed on your face. You need water that comes from even deeper down inside of you than the thirst itself. And Jesus is saying, I can give it. I can give you absolute satisfaction in the core of your being, regardless of what happens outside, regardless of circumstances. And that's what he's promising in this verse with the language that he uses. And imagine, guys, how differently you would live your life and relate to other people, if you have this living water and this spring of living water springing forth from within you, you'll have so much to give to others out of the overflow of what you're experiencing in Christ, and you won't 
be imposing on others the burden of having to be your thirst quencher, right? So do yourself a favor and do the people in your life a favor and get this living water from Jesus. And know that in speaking the way that he does here, Jesus knows what he is talking about. He came all the way from heaven in order to make these promises to us, and he fully intends to fulfill them. He's telling us that if we will simply receive this living water from him, the water that he gives will literally bubble forth from deep within our being and spring up within us through time and eternity. And this is the promise that this Samaritan woman is listening to right now on her journey toward getting her soul's thirst quenched by Jesus. But she does more than this, which brings us to the third step that this woman takes toward getting her thirst quenched by Jesus. Number three, she admits her thirst and she asks Jesus to be her thirst quencher. She admits her thirst and she asks Jesus to be her thirst quencher and we should do the same. Observe what the woman says to Jesus in verse 15. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty. Give me this water that will become a well of living water within me springing up to eternal life that you've just been speaking about, she's saying. As we saw last week, evidently she believes Jesus' promise and she's now asking for this living water saying, so that I will not be thirsty. So here she is admitting her thirst to Jesus and asking him to be her thirst quencher. So maybe you are here this morning and you say that you have believed in Christ as your Lord and Savior, but let me ask you the question this way. Have you believed in him as your thirst quencher? Given the choices you've made over the course of this past week, is there sufficient evidence that you have truly believed in Jesus as the thirst quencher of your soul? What specific things did you do this week to drink deeply of Christ and to satisfy the longings of your soul in him? When you think about it, you realize that technically all of us are drinking all the time. Anytime we go to just about anything to read, to listen to, to think about, or someone we relate to, we're drinking. So what have you been drinking this past week? Social media? A relationship? Some boy or girl? Pornography? Sports? Your career? The internet? Oh, what a deep well our laptops and smartphones have become. Have you been drinking from the well of lustful fantasies or from the well of festering grievances? Have you been drinking from the well of a video game world? 
Have you been drinking from the well of self-pity or drinking from the well of anger and bitterness? The list of possible wells that we can drink from is virtually endless. As you look back over this past week, do you see evidence that you are trusting Jesus every day to be your thirst quencher? How much did you drink from him deliberately this past week? In verse 15, this woman hears Jesus speak about the living water that he gives, and she says, sir, give me this water. And she doesn't stop there. There's another step she takes toward getting her thirst quenched by Jesus. Number four, she becomes fed up with her life as she knew it. She becomes fed up with her life as she knew it, and so should we. Notice what the woman says at the end of verse 15. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. We saw last week how this woman is coming to this particular well at this particular time of the day because she's a moral outcast who is reduced to having to walk a half mile outside of town to come to this well in the heat of the day by herself rather than in community with other women. She has come to understand, though, in her conversation with Jesus that if she can just get this living water that he's talking about from him, then she would live her life differently and would not be reduced any longer to having to slink around outside of town to avoid people when she gets her water. This woman is saying to Jesus, give me this water so that I won't be thirsty and so that I won't be driven by my thirst to make the lifestyle choices that I've been making, which render me a moral outcast who has to travel alone to this well in the heat of the day to get my water. Maybe earlier this woman saw this loneliness as a worthwhile trade-off for having the men that she's had in her life. But now she's standing before Jesus and something's waking up inside of her. And she doesn't want to do this anymore. She's ready for life as she has known it to end. And I would ask you, how about you? Are you tired of the hiding and the loneliness? Are you tired of the sin? Are you tired of the guilt? Are you tired of the secrecy and the lies? Are you tired of the loneliness that comes from sin? Are you tired of being trapped and isolated inside of your concealments and your deceptions of others? Yes, you may have succeeded in hiding the truth of what you are doing from others, but in the process, you've just hidden your true self from others. And now you are more alone than ever behind the walls of deception that you have built. The people in your life may 
love you, yet their love now means less to you because now you wonder what they would think of you and would they really love you the same if they knew the truth about you that you've been concealing from them? Well, this woman is tired of the sin, tired of what her sin has reduced her to. She's ready for this to end. So she says again in verse 15, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. And the Greek word that is translated all the way here is actually one word in the Greek text. This word is an intensified form of the word for here. And it's not often used in the New Testament. In fact, it only shows up twice in John's gospel. And that is here in verse 14 or in verse 15. And then in the very next verse, which actually ushers us toward the next step that this Samaritan woman takes toward getting her thirst quenched by Jesus. And that is number five. She lets Jesus go to her sin issues. And so should we. She lets Jesus go to her sin issues. Observe what Jesus does in verse 16. He said to her, go, call your husband and come here. Literally, we could translate it to be consistent with verse 15. Go call your husband and come all the way here. Essentially, he's saying to her, you don't want to come here anymore, do you? Actually, I want you to come here to this spot at least one more time, and not just you. Go get your husband and come back here, and I'll be waiting here for the two of you. Now, why does Jesus bring up the matter of this woman's husband and invite her to bring him to this well. Is this a brand new topic that has nothing to do with her soul's thirst? Not at all. If this woman is truly going to drink from the living water that Jesus gives, Jesus must address where this woman has been drinking all of these years, and that is from the well of men and marriages. In fact, John Piper is right when he talks about this woman's relationship with ultimately six men and says, and I quote, no woman goes through this many men who did not either start out insatiably thirsty or end up insatiably thirsty. Beyond that, in telling this woman to go call your husband and come here It's interesting to think about this. Jesus is actually creating an opportunity for this woman to make a choice to either walk away from Jesus if she wants to or to stay and confront her sin. Look at the text here. Jesus literally tells her to go. Go, which would involve her walking away from Jesus. So this is her chance to leave if she wants and she could have taken that opportunity and said to Jesus, uh, yeah, sure, I'll, uh, I'll go get my husband. I, I think he's busy today. I think he's working today. But let me go try and find him if I can find him. And if he is willing to come, I'll come right back and bring him with me. So, yeah, I may see you later 
this afternoon or maybe tomorrow if today doesn't end up working out. Maybe I'll catch up with you later. If this woman really wants to get away from Jesus, she right now has a chance to do that by simply acting like she has a husband and exiting this conversation quickly. But amazingly, this woman doesn't walk away from Jesus. Instead, observe what she does in verse 17. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And this reply from her indicates that at least for the moment, she wants to stay with Jesus and give him a very important piece of information about herself. The commentator Linsky explains how amazing this moment really is. He says, and I quote, the woman makes no move to go. She stands there before this strange Jew and confesses her shame. I have no husband. Those few words cost the woman something. Her quick mind surely tells her that Jesus may probe farther, but this does not seal her lips, does not make her evade, does not rouse her temper, and does not make her say, what business are my private matters to you? No, she confesses. And the fact that she does this before this stranger is because of the effect of what he has been saying to her. To Jesus, whose lips are filled with the gospel, the sinner finds he can confess, unquote. And that's where this woman is right now. She replies by saying, I have no husband. In other words, she's saying, I'm not in a marriage relationship with a man who is officially mine right now. I have no one presently that I can bring to you and say, this is my husband to whom I am married. And this woman is exactly right in saying this. And notably, she stands her ground. She does not flee. She does not pretend. She makes her admission, and then, evidently, she trusts Jesus with whatever he might say or do next. And observe how Jesus responds in verses 17 and 18. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Notice, by the way, that Jesus compliments this woman twice for her honesty. He says, you have well said, in verse 17, and this you have said truly, in verse 18. Jesus commends her, and he appreciates her honesty with him. But then Jesus says to her in verse 18, you have had five husbands, now, we have to be careful here we, to presume you know, too much about this woman's life story. We don't know, honestly, why this woman had five husbands. It could be that some or all of these husbands had died. It could be that some or all of these husbands had divorced her. It could be that she left some or all of these 
husbands and insisted that they divorce her. It could be that she is a victim of a horrible system that exploited women and their vulnerability in this particular Samaritan culture. There's a lot that we don't know here. But we do know that later in this chapter, this woman is going to go around to everyone saying, in verse 29, come see a man who told me all things that I have done. So however we understand this woman's marital history that Jesus is speaking about here, we should know that this woman views Jesus as speaking about choices that she herself was complicit in. And history teaches us that having five husbands was scandalous. The commentator F.F. Bruce says, in theory, there was no limit to the number of marriages that might be contracted after valid divorces, but the rabbis regarded two or at the most three marriages as the maximum for a woman. Well, this woman has had five And it's even worse than that. Notice what Jesus goes on to say to this woman in verse 18 regarding her present situation, saying, and the one you have now is not your husband. In other words, you are having a man right now, as in living with him and being intimate with him, but he is not your husband. You're not married to him. In making this statement, Jesus could be saying, the one you're living with and having and being intimate with right now is not your husband, as in not your husband yet. Or he actually could be saying, the one you are living with right now is not your own husband because he's another woman's husband right now. The language that Jesus uses here could very well indicate that this woman is in an adulterous relationship with a man who is presently married to another woman. That's in the range of possibilities. Either way, Jesus is shining a massive spotlight right on this woman's shameful past and present. Take the worst things that you have ever done in your life. Maybe the worst things that you're doing in your life right now. And imagine a stranger speaking aloud those things in your presence. How would it sound to you to hear what you have done coming out of the mouth of someone like that? That's what's happening to this woman right now as Jesus speaks to her. As for what Christ is doing here, let's not be surprised that Christ is going to this woman's sin issues so early in this conversation with her. Christ is not interested in a relationship with this woman or with us that doesn't go to our sin issues, right? As D.A. Carson says so beautifully, if Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, inevitably he will deal with sin in the lives of of those who express some interest in knowing and following him. It's just what you get from him when you decide to follow him. And Jesus does this because he wants to deliver us 
from the sins that enslave us and from the guilt of those sins. And when Jesus does go to this woman's sin, he speaks about her sin with unflinching honesty. He does not sugarcoat her past or her present, which has to leave this woman right now thinking, if I want a relationship of any sort with this man that I'm talking to right now, then this is what I'm going to get from him. Uncompromising truthfulness from him about my sin and the choices that I have made and am making. She would have realized that at this point, and yet we're going to see that this woman right now is not afraid of Jesus. And why is she not afraid? This leads us to the sixth step that this woman takes toward getting her soul's thirst quenched by Jesus. Number six, she comes to see that Jesus knows her utterly, yet loves her still. She comes to see that Jesus knows her utterly, yet loves her still. I sure hope I can do justice to this point. Observe again what Jesus says in verses 17 and 18. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Some commentators in their commentary on verses 17 and 18 suggest that Jesus' words here would have been devastating to this woman. But I think what Jesus is saying here is the most freeing thing that this woman has ever heard. Why? Because these words coming from the lips of Jesus right now show her that this man who is being kind and loving to her as he converses with her has known the full truth about her all along. That's huge. Think with me for a minute on this. When Jesus earlier said to this woman, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who's talking to you, you would have asked him for living water and he would have given it to you. This woman might have thought to herself and probably did think to herself, well, sir, I may not know who you are, but one thing I know for sure is that you obviously don't know me. If you did, you wouldn't be talking so kindly to me. This woman was used to being scorned and looked down on by people who knew the truth about her. She knew what it was like for new people in town or strangers to smile at her and treat her kindly before they got to know the truth about her. She would see their smiles and think, yeah, they obviously don't know the truth about me yet. And then maybe a few days later, she encounters those same people and she notices that their countenance has now darkened towards her and she would know the reason. They've heard my story. They know the truth about me. So, of course, they would be this way toward me. So here is... This woman is at this well, and here's this out-of-town 
Jewish stranger talking to her and being courteous to her. He's talking to her about God and about living water that he would like to give her. And he's making some pretty generous promises to her. And her heart swells as she listens. But a question haunts her. Would this man be talking to me in this way if he knew my story? if he really knew me. And what Jesus is now saying to her about her five husbands and the present man that she is now unlawfully with indicates that he's known about this woman's sinful past and present all along, which now leaves this woman drinking in the most amazing realization of her life. And her thought process would have been as follows, This man knows everything I've ever done. Yet he just told me that he's eager to give living water to me that will satisfy me from the inside out. And the truth that he's just now spoken to me about my relationships with men shows me that the promises that he's made to me are not the shallow promises of a man who doesn't know me. This man who is being so kind and courteous and loving toward me has known everything about me all along. Far from being devastated, this woman is now discovering the thrilling reality that touches her more deeply than anything has ever touched her in her life. She has finally been found out by someone who knows her utterly and loves her still. Amen? As we've talked about before, it's one thing to be loved. This woman experienced that love in the first few verses of this chapter as Jesus spoke to her. It's another thing to be known. Everyone in the town knew this woman, and this is why she walks half a mile outside of town to come to this well in the heat of the day. But it's another thing to be known and loved by the same friend. And that's what this woman is now discovering in Jesus. To be loved but not known is shallow. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. To be known and loved by the same person is the reality that quenches our soul's deepest thirst once and for all. So what is Christ doing here? He's bringing this woman's sin out into the open between them so that it can be dealt with. But he's doing even more than that. He's burrowing a channel right into this area of her life so that his living water can flow there. And he's doing even more than that. Through his words here, he's not just revealing her, he's revealing himself as the omniscient lover of her soul. And this is our greatest need. We don't just need a lover of our soul, we need an omniscient lover of our soul, and that's Jesus. And it is only in the experience of his omniscient love that the thirst of our hearts can 
begin to be satisfied. This brings us to the seventh step that this woman takes toward getting her thirst quenched by Jesus. And that is she receives Jesus' painfully truthful assessment of her. She receives Jesus' painfully truthful assessment of her, and we should do the same. Observe what happens in verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And in speaking these few words, this woman is communicating volumes. This woman could have reacted to Jesus' words with defensiveness or with anger. She could have responded with denial, with deceptions or offense. Instead, she says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And in uttering this perception, this woman is basically saying, sir, you are exactly right about me. I do not deny, but rather I announce that what you have just said about me is correct. Keep in mind that back in this day, a prophet was someone who was supposed to have, they were expected to have special insight into people. In Luke 7, when a sinful woman enters a house to wipe Jesus' feet with her hair and with her tears, Uh, People in the room are thinking, let me read this to you. If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. Prophets were expected to know these kinds of things about people. So here in John 4, Jesus says what he says about this woman and the men in her life, and she begins to perceive that Jesus is a prophet who has divinely given knowledge about her, and she voices that. This woman does not say, sir, I perceive that you are crazy. She doesn't say, sir, I perceive that you are wrong about me. She doesn't say, sir, I perceive that you are sticking your nose where it does not belong. No, she says, I perceive that you are a prophet of God who has divinely granted insight into me. And by the way, this woman is saying even more than this. Keep in mind that this woman was a Samaritan. Being a Samaritan, she only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament and rejected the rest. So if you were to ask this woman, who was the last prophet in Israel's history? What would her answer be? Her answer would be the last biblical prophet was Moses. And then consider, write this reference down, Deuteronomy 18.18. God speaks to Moses and says, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And when the Samaritans back in this day read that verse, Deuteronomy 18.18, they understood it to be referring to the Messiah, and they were still waiting for this promised prophet to come, which means that for this woman to speak of Jesus now as a prophet was to move into the arena of messianic 
expectation. Essentially, this woman is voicing what she's now beginning to perceive. She's already concluded that she wants Jesus to be her thirst quencher. And now she says, I'm perceiving that you are the prophet foretold in Deuteronomy 18, the messianic prophet. She's on the very edge of discovering that Jesus is the Messiah and on the very verge of getting the thirst of her soul quenched by him once and for all. And we're going to stop the story here for today, and you'll have to come back and see how it finishes. But rather than, just think about now what this, where this woman is at. Jesus has just said these things about her. She's realizing this is a messianic prophet of God as that realization is dawning upon her, and rather than running away from Jesus, this woman stays in the presence of this one who has told her everything that she ever did. She's being drawn in by the charms of this omniscient lover of her soul, this one who knows her fully, who speaks to her honestly about her sin, and who still loves her and is eager to satisfy her soul with the living water that he is anxious to give her. And you and I ought to let Jesus conquer us in the same way. Here's the gospel that you and I can lift from this story so far. Jesus is God's gift to you. He loves you enough to offer you the living water that he gives. He himself is that living water. He's eager to cross all sorts of barriers to engage with you and to give himself to you. He loves you, and his love for you is not some shallow love. He knows everything about you. He knows all of your sin, and he loves you still. If you want a relationship with him, he will speak honestly to you about your sin more honestly and forthrightly than anyone you have ever known as he seeks to deliver you from your sins and bring you into the satisfaction that he is fully qualified to give you. And your honesty in speaking to him will please him and end up being good for you too. What is not to love about a Savior like this? We go on in John's gospel to learn that Jesus went all the way to the cross and died on the cross in order to be the one who gets to give you this living water. I call upon you this morning to obey your thirst and come to him for the living water that he is and that only he can give. And if you do know Jesus, I would call upon you to look at the things that you're consuming every day and challenge you to obey the thirst of your soul every day and keep coming to him first and foremost, believing in him and looking to him to be your thirst quencher and drinking deeply from him. As long as you're doing that, a few things will happen. Number one, you're not going to be thirsting for other things. 
Number two, you will rescue other people in your life from the burden of having to be your thirst quencher because you've already found that in Jesus. And number three, you'll find yourself having so much to give to others out of the overflow of what you're experiencing in Jesus. And let's join our hearts in prayer together as we close and just ask God to help us to live this way this week, to live the kind of lifestyle this week to where at the end of the week there would be sufficient evidence to prove that we truly have believed in Jesus to be our thirst quencher. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your loving ways that are just so ingenious and remarkable, the finesse with which you speak to this woman and cut to the chase and get right to the issues that need to be addressed in her soul. And as, as startled as she might have been that you actually went where you went regarding the choices she was making, you were lovingly, Lord, just burrowing a path to that area of her life so that you can then send in a flood your living water to that area of her life so that her soul's thirst could be quenched. Lord, there are people in this room whose souls are thirsty and, and they're, they're drinking from so many things that are only defiling them further and leaving them even more thirsty than they were before. And I pray that you would remove the scales from their eyes and from my eyes and from all of our eyes, Lord, that we would see you for the thirst-quenching living water and lover of our souls that you really are. And that it would not be a duty to drink of you, but that it would be the delight of our hearts every day to relate to you, to enjoy you relating to us and receiving this living water that only you can give. We ask this of you, Lord, if you answer no other prayer but this one, we would be satisfied. We ask these things in your name and all God's people said,